Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to CSIS. Uh, I'm Scott Kennedy. I'm the uh, trustee chair in Chinese Business and Economics. Uh, and I'm also your fire marshal today. So if, if there's a problem, and there won't be, uh, just follow my instructions and you'll be safe. If you don't follow my instructions, you'll probably still be safe. But uh, better to uh, follow them and we'll all exit from either the front door here, from the back door, and go down the stairs, or we'll go out the front, depending on which way the flames are coming from. Uh, so, no, but everything will be fine uh, and we'll take care of you. Uh, we want to make sure at every single event you feel safe, and I'm sure that that announcement made you feel even more safe than when you came in. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, today's event uh, about the book Policy Regulation and Innovation in China's Electricity and Telecom Industries. The question of the book is in its title. How do policy and regulation affect how innovative Chinese industries are? Through our work at CSIS, we've developed an answer to this question. Uh, the more marketized a sector, that is, the more open to competition, domestic and international it is, the more innovative it is. Overall, marketization, though, is still from universal, and hence that's why we call China a fat tech dragon, innovative but massively inefficient. Today we're going to hear uh, from uh, experts in the field and find out what their answer to the question is. Uh, we've got uh, Lauren Brandt and Tom Rowski, who are leaders in the field of economics in China, and they and several colleagues have put together this extremely important book. Now their answer to these questions matters a ton. Does China offer a different model of success in which state capitalism or China Inc. smartly pulls all the levers of control to generate innovation? Or is this model bringing China's economy down? Or is China's successes due to other kinds of explanations, maybe answers that we're more familiar with? Their answer to these questions has a huge implication for everyone uh, in China, in Washington, and elsewhere. Is made in China 2025 and its related policies likely to be successful? And is China's approach constructive or destructive for competitors in other economies and for other countries. And given all that, then what should the United States and others do, given China's effort to move up the value-added chain? Their answers also matter because of who they are. Their bios in their book, if you've gotten them, and we have some on sale, uh, just outside the room, and afterward, uh, Tom and Lauren will be there to sign their copies of the book. Uh, if you look at the bios in the book, they don't do anywhere near the justice that they should. These are the most humble bios I've ever read for uh, two icons in the field. Um, and it's because of that that you need to take this book uh, as seriously as anything that you read on China. Lauren Brandt is the Naranda Chair Professor of Economics and International Trade at the University of Toronto. And his current research focuses on issues of industrial upgrading and development, China's long-run economic growth, and inequality dynamics. Tom Rowski is Emeritus Professor of Economics and History at the University of Pittsburgh. His research focuses on the development and modern history of China's economy, including studies of China's reform, 
mechanisms and achievements as well as analyses of, on the, focused on productivity, investment, industry, trade, energy, labor markets, environment, and economic measurement. What makes me and what should make you pay attention to everything that they and their colleagues work on is how careful and thoughtful they are in the work that they do. They use big data and big, big data. I'm talking the largest data sets you can find on China's economy. They use small data. They get outside their office on airplanes to China, uh, not just in Shanghai, but all over the place uh, where it's difficult to travel, uncomfortable to travel, uh, to do case studies, to look at every part of the supply chain of different industries. That's real life economics, that's real life economies. In addition, uh, they've both spent a lot of time looking at the history of China's economy, um, individually and together. Uh, and this isn't the first time that they've collaborated uh, on a major volume. In 2008, uh, they together published China's Ec Great Economic Transformation, also from Cambridge University Press. And as before, they put together a top flight group of talent, uh, 10 other contributors, several several of whom who are here today and they'll introduce in a bit. Uh, and so again, that's why we're delighted to be able to host uh, Tom and Lauren today to present the findings from their book. They're going to make a presentation that briefly introduces the results of the book. Uh, and then we're lucky to have my colleague uh, Jane Nakano from CSIS here who will offer her reactions to the book, uh, both the contents of the book and implications of the book for uh, global energy markets for climate change and other issues. Um, so I'll introduce her a little bit more in, in a while, but first why don't I turn the floor over to Lauren and Tom. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for this kind introduction. Thank you for arranging this uh, most welcome opportunity to uh, showcase uh, our ideas. So three of our contributors are uh, here today. Uh, Irene Wu sitting in the front row who wrote a chapter about regulation. Um, I can't see in the lights, but I think Margaret Pearson is here. Or will be. So uh, will be here, who wrote a chapter on the role of local governments uh, in innovation. And my co-author, uh, Ravi Madhavan, who's sitting here, who's, uh, wrote with us about the uh, nuclear industry. So the, the fundamental problem here is the problem of industrial policy. Can governments accelerate the rate of upgrading and innovation uh, and this is a controversial question that dates back to the early 19th uh, century and has been debated with regard to the US, with regard to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and now China is the biggest uh, forum for debating uh, the effects of uh, in industrial policy. So we wanted to study this. It's a, it's a major issue. China is a major player uh, in efforts to accelerate uh, industrial upgrading uh, and innovation. We wanted to do this in a cross-disciplinary way. Uh, we had the idea that, that economists often study the outcome but aren't fully aware of the policy background and the institutional structure. At the same time, uh, our colleagues in political science often are deeply engaged uh, with the policies and uh, uh, the institutional structure but find it hard to come to grips with the uh, uh, outcomes. I think one merit of our study is that we focus intensively on a small 
subset of industries. Uh, electricity, which occupies uh, the most space here, I should show you the table of contents if I can get this to work. Uh, and also telecommunication and semiconductors, which are a key uh, input into telecommunication uh, and other industries. So we have multiple authors from multiple disciplinary perspectives presenting their independent views uh, on, on these industries. Uh, there was no party line uh, on the part of the uh, editors. Uh, these industries, both electricity and telecom, are network industries. They affect everything. Uh, in the economy, and they also embody both old and new uh, technologies. So we had four key questions. How do the Chinese try to uh, accelerate innovation and upgrading? What is the regulatory and institutional background, and how does that influence the behavior of actors uh, in the system? What is the trajectory of innovation and upgrading, and how can we use what we learned about electricity and telecommunications to, as a springboard to make broader observations about uh, the Chinese economy as a whole. So a as, as we all know, we're looking now at four decades of reform in China, which in general has been pushing the economy uh, in market-leaning directions. But at the same time, throughout this period, we have a top-down system in which the government sets objectives, selects technologies for special emphasis, picks firms to pioneer the development of the selected technologies, and, and transfers increasing, and by now, very, very large resources to put them at the disposal of the companies and the sectors that are tasked with the mission of upgrading and developing uh, key technology. So we, we see this in large enterprise groups in China, in the uh, SASAC, the state administration of uh, state assets, uh, and we see that this top-down core sector has been streamlined over the decades uh, to focus on a diminishing set of industries, uh, technologies. For, so for example, we no longer hear about textiles in this context, but we're talking about industries like semiconductors, nuclear power, uh, and, 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 and uh, so on. So Chinese industrial policy is unusual and it takes place at many levels. Local governments are big players in innovation efforts and, and in many cases uh, very well funded. Uh, another feature of this system is that the regulatory system is essentially weak by design. You have regulatory agencies that are unable to move other government agencies, and also they're often dealing with very large state-owned enterprises whose leaders outrank the heads of the uh, regulatory uh, agencies. There's also a great deal of discretion throughout this system. Just as an example, uh, some years ago we visited a, a power generating equipment company in, in Xi'an and, and they casually said to us, oh, these high level officials, they will make decisions about bidding for equipment supply and so they will often assign the contracts without even looking at the documents. I mean, th this indicates the level of discretion that we see uh, throughout uh, the, uh, uh, the Chinese system and as a result, it's not easy to specify exactly what the policy is. 
because we see what comes out of Beijing, but local governments uh, have their own interpretation uh, and, and sometimes uh, downplay or neglect or even contradict uh, central policy. And then there's discretion uh, everywhere. So in China, it's particularly difficult to draw a clean line between policy and outcomes. Uh, but this is what uh, we are trying to do uh, in, in uh, this book. So industrial policy in China is of two types. One is the universal sort of policy which benefits all producers. So for example, expanding education, expanding the university uh, uh, system. Uh, and also the Chinese are very dedicated to interventionist policies where government picks certain products, picks certain technologies, picks certain enterprises to be the beneficiary of uh, government uh, largesse. And, and the, the industrial policy is conducted on an enormous scale. So government guidance funds uh, in 2015, uh, the stock of funds at that time was approximately a trillion US dollars. Uh, in shipbuilding alone, people estimated the government has unrolled about $100 billion uh, worth, worth of, of subsidies. The, these programs are massively larger than anything we've seen in the United States, the Kennedy program of moon exploration uh, or, or, uh, or, or the Soviet Union. So the policy instruments are all the standard instruments, picking products, picking technologies, picking agents, uh, giving away or selling land at very low prices, tax breaks, uh, subsidies. Uh, but there are also unusual features of the Chinese system. The importance of local and also provincial governments. The worldwide search for talent. The Thousand Talents program uh, that's being criticized by uh, our government recently. The search for information uh, that includes activities that are the subject of criminal indictments uh, in the United States. That no industrial policy effort has uh, witnessed this depth and breadth uh, in the past. So what about outcomes? Well, first of all, we find technical upgrading on a very wide level in, in, in a, a wide range of industries extending far beyond the industries uh, that we study. That, that uh, Chinese firms uh, gain ground in the domestic market. Uh, we see many firms uh, increasing exports in the uh, solar equipment, telecom equipment, uh, thermal power equipment are examples that are covered uh, in our study. Uh, one important achievement of the Chinese networking industries is universal service. Uh, in 2015, Chinese electricity extended to the most remote uh, villages in Qinghai province. Uh, and I didn't realize this, but in 1945, only half of American farms had electricity. So universal access to electricity in the United States occurred in the 1950s. Uh, and at that time, per capita income was a large multiple of what, uh, what it is in China today. So this, this is a very impressive achievement. The same thing in telecom. Uh, when, and I remember going to China in the mid-1980s, and my host in Beijing said, we want to invite so-and-so to have lunch with us. How shall we do this? I can try and call him, or I can send somebody on a bicycle to go to his office. And he said, hey, you, go on the bicycle. And you know, the system was so unreliable that uh, a, a, a call across town in the capital city couldn't be expected uh, to work. And now, uh, anywhere in China, you pick up the phone, you can dial domestically, uh, dial overseas. These, these, these are high-class uh, uh, accomplishments. In the electric power industry, 
technical coefficients are similar to those in the U.S. Coal consumption less than in U.S. plants. Uh, line loss to the grid same as in the uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and we have examples of frontier innovation uh, in China. The one that's described in most detail in the book is. Uh, the ultra-high voltage long-distance power transmission in which China's state grid corporation is the undoubted world leader uh, in, in, in this uh, uh, technology. So uh, a second point that, that uh, we'd like to make is that we have no big theory. Uh, we cannot predict which policies will produce success and which policies don't. We see the same policies affecting the semiconductor industry, which is done very poorly, thermal power equipment, which have done well, and, and uh, ultra-high voltage transmission, which, uh, as I've said, is a world leader uh, uh, technologically. So what is the key, perhaps the, the difficulty of the technical obstacles that these uh, firms confront, uh, perhaps the quality of management? Uh, it's hard to say, but there, there's no simple way of, of saying what works and what doesn't work uh, in, in uh, China's industrial policy. Uh, another feature that we see across the board is they prioritize technical objectives over economic objectives. And I think this partly reflects the Soviet legacy. Uh, and one of the lessons of this book, for me at least, is that the, the legacy of Soviet influence in the Chinese economy is much larger than I thought it was uh, when we started out on this, uh, on, on, on this project. So the objectives of the Made in China 2025 program that Scott referred to, it, it reads like the first five-year plan. There's no discussion of markets. There's no discussion of competition. It's about physical, uh, uh, physical uh, uh, targets. Uh, another important conclusion, I think, is that this is a system that has very high built-in costs. And electricity provides a vehicle for looking at this because it's simple. There's one product, five firms produce half the output, two firms distribute 90% of the output. So by looking at a very small number of firms uh, and only a single product, we can see what's going on uh, in the whole industry. And, and we can quantify some of the system costs that people like Ken Lieberthal, who may be in the audience here, uh, associate with China's highly negotiated political system. And negotiation means time and energy and to us, that means uh, system costs. So in the American electricity industry, the share of managers is 6.8%. In China, it's 17.8%. Need, you need this extra manpower to uh, work things out. Uh, and we find that the cost of generating and delivering electricity is 30% higher in China than it is in the United States, even though the ingredients in generating and delivering electricity are cheaper in China than they are uh, in the United States. Uh, our authors find many areas in which technical upgrades produce no economic uh, benefit. Uh, as one engineer said to us in a power plant, we spent a large amount of money improving our equipment to lower our coal consumption. He said, but of course, if we just increased the utilization of the existing plant, we could have gotten the same reduction in coal coal consumption at zero cost. Many episodes uh, of uh, this sort. Uh, we find low utilization uh, in the telecom networks, uh, in the electricity grid. Uh, in the United States, uh, engineers recommend 15% extra 
capacity compared to peak load in power systems. In China, the provincial average is 90%. In Inner Mongolia, which is the biggest power generating province, it's over 200%. Uh, and finally, quality issues. Uh, Deputy Minister of Machinery says that uh, Chinese machinery is useful but not too reliable because of small defects. And in high technology industries, uh, this is very dangerous. So what we're looking at is a tug of war. We see huge resources being poured into innovation. Uh, we see the creativity and entrepreneurship of the Chinese people and Chinese firms. This is good. And we see system costs and inefficiency, which is moving in the other direction. And we look to productivity uh, to resolve this uh, disagreement and turn to Lauren to talk about that. Okay, great. Now, if we take a look, perhaps a slightly longer perspective, you know, on the Chinese economy, we kind of ask ourselves where the growth happens to have come, been coming from, you know, especially the period, let's just say, before the financial crisis. You know, there's all kinds of interpretations and stories about Chinese growth being investment-led, export-led. The bottom line is that what's underlying Chinese growth over this period, probably the three decades up to the financial crisis, it's really a story about productivity. And if you do, again, kind of the, the, the quantitative analysis right, but at the end of the day, something on the order of about 65 to 70 percent of the growth that we observe in the Chinese economy is because of improvements in productivity. Now, this productivity growth is going to be a direct, again, contribute directly to growth. But if you ever ask yourself about why is it the case that in the Chinese private sector we get, you know, the investments that we do, well, this productivity growth is just help, was hoping it was helping during this period of time to maintain very high rates of return to capital that we're providing, again, these private entrepreneurs the incentives to go ahead and to undertake the investments that they were making. You know, one of the first times that, it, that this kind of hit me was you know, a conversation with an entrepreneur where I asked him you know, who's you know, undertaking a fairly significant investment. And I was trying to kind of figure out a way to kind of ask him in terms of what the rate of return was without actually asking him what the rate of return was. And I said, you know, you've just gone ahead and you've made a $10 million investment. How many years is it going to take you for you to be able to pay back that investment? He told me two years. Yeah, that is in self-signifying rates of return of about 45 or 50 percent in the private sector. And if you do, again, the analysis that what you observe is that throughout much of the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, you observe incredibly high rates of return to capital in the private sector. So this has always been an economy where there's been a lot of inefficiency for all kinds of reasons, but there's been an enormous amount of dynamism. And so if you happen to have an economy where 45 or 50 percent, again, of GDP is being invested, you know, even if a significant portion of that is not being invested very wisely and is serving all kinds of purposes, if you happen to have this other segment of the economy where what they're really concerned about are rates of return and profitability, that's going to provide you an awful lot of mileage. So my perspective, certainly perspective, has been that the Chinese growth story, certainly up through you know, the financial crisis, it is really a story about productivity. And then you start asking yourself, where was the productivity growth coming from? And especially the 10 or 15 years before the financial crisis. And there are things, again, that we observe. There are successions of policies that we observe that are reinforcing themselves in a variety of ways. We see, again, declining barriers to entry of private sector firms. We see increasing competition. We see downsizing and restructuring and repurposing of the state sector. We see declining tariff and non-tariff barriers. We see openness to FDI. And what's even more important is that although we often talk about Chinese growth as being export-led, and I don't want to say that openness and exports aren't important, 
but at least in China's manufacturing sector, something on the order of about 85% that gets produced is being sold domestically. So that what that tells you is how the domestic market happens to operate and functions ends up being extremely important to the dynamism that we happen to observe. And so this is an extremely messy process, but if we take a look again over this period of time, certainly up to the financial crisis, is that what we observe is incredible amounts of dynamism. We see dynamic firms, but we see enormous heterogeneity in terms of cross sectors as well. And if you, in some sense, want to be able to predict what the dynamic sectors are and which ones aren't, although it's a bit simplistic, just go ahead and take from the perspective of the mid-1990s how important the state sector was in any sector. So that although you're going to see some heterogeneity, and you're going to see state sectors where state-dominated sector firms where late 90s, early 2000s, these sectors actually do reasonably well in any sector that we're going to find, again, examples of good state sector firms, that what that tells us is that what is extremely important, again, to how well firms behave, the dynamism, the productivity, again, in a sector, that's really, again, about the more generally the regulatory environment in which these firms happen to be competing. So the story, again, that certainly from uh, our perspective here, is an incredible amount of dynamism. And then you start asking yourself, what is it that begins to happen? Maybe it happens a little bit earlier you know, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And although, again, there's people, again, in the room who know the numbers certainly better than, than we do. But there's a clear indication that what we've observed over the last 10 years is a marked slowdown in growth. How slow? Well, you know, we can go ahead and that we could debate. If we were to ask ourselves, where is that slowdown coming from, again, in this economy? I think where it's coming from is declining productivity. And that as we take a look again at these sectors that we happen to be looking at, sectors, again, that are extremely important from the perspective of the state, when you kind of take a look at those things, again, that Tom, were, were, that Tom again, that kind of highlighted in terms of the decisions with respect to choices of technology, uh, choices, again, of investment that we observe, all of these things, again, are going to indicative of relatively low, if not declining, productivity growth, again, throughout the economy. And so that on a net, I think that what we're, I think, suggesting here is that on net, that insofar as that we've seen, again, a policy shift, and just exactly when that policy shift occurs, you know, is it because of Xi Jinping or does it begin earlier? That's an extremely hard one. Because we know that the state-owned enterprise sector is important today. But if you take a look at policy over the course of the last 20 or 30 years with respect to the state sector, even from the decision to go ahead and to reorganize ministries and bureaus into state enterprise groups, uh, in terms of decisions to go ahead and to downsize the state sector and to dedicate those resources again to strategic and key sectors, to the setting up of SASIC, to even financial reform that basically takes off an awful lot of bad debt off the balance sheets of the banks and puts them in a position to be able to direct again that credit to where the state happens to be more important, to even something like fiscal reform, that fiscal reform that goes ahead and and increases the resources in the hands of the center relative to the local government. It puts a lot of resources in the hands of the center to direct in terms of where, again, they, again, are where they deem to be important. And so in a number of ways, I think that the irony, at least, of the, of the Chinese experiences, and I think this raises lots of questions, is that you know, in a variety of ways, again, that what we've learned, what the Chinese experience suggests, I think, in a very big way, is it really important how important things like openness competition um, are to upgrading productivity growth capability building to increasing competitiveness again on the part of Chinese firms, the ability of Chinese firms to be able to compete not only domestically uh, but globally. And so that in a variety of ways again that we've seen in terms of the policy direction, I think one would argue that this is a, the, the policy direction 
is in fact moving in fact the exact opposite of the directions of what the lessons have been during the previous two or three decades. And if anything, that what this does is it kind of highlights the multiple objectives and interests that in some sense are shaping policy in China. Certainly growth, again, has always been an important one. We tell these stories, again, about how important is growth is, again, to kind of maintaining, again, the mandate. But what it also suggests is just how important from the perspective of policy, and here, we're talking about critical industries. We're talking about industries, electricity, power. Right? These are, in some sense, key industries. They've also, again, become extremely important to China's kind of going out type policies. But lots of these industries, again, are going to be industries that have military or strategic implications. But these are also industries that we know that there's an enormous amount of patronage and network building, again, in the context, again, of the party that are extremely important in that regard. So in some sense, I think what our study goes ahead and suggests is, hey, look, there's multiple objectives, again, out there in terms of the state, in terms of what they're pursuing. Growth has been important. There's also a lot of these other objectives that are as well. And so it just may simply be, again, that what we're observing are important trade-offs. Trade-offs in this regard because these sectors, the development of capabilities in these sectors, again, are helping to fulfill other kinds of objectives other than just simply a strictly kind of economic one in terms of what do we need to do uh, to go ahead and to, um, to, maximize, uh, to maximize growth. So I think maybe I'm going to go ahead and I'll just you know, stop there just to make sure, again, that we uh, you know, have full times again for Q&A. Super, super. Uh, Lauren and Tom, thank you very much for uh, overview of, of your book, the, the big arguments uh, and some of the key conclusions. Uh, especially the ironies, uh, the, more, the harder you try, maybe the less uh, results you get. Uh, we're going to come back to that. Let me turn now to Jane uh, Nakano, who's a senior fellow in the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. Uh, Jane's area of expertise includes U.S. energy policy, global market and policy developments concerning natural gas, nuclear energy, and coal, and energy security issues in the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to joining CSIS in 2010, uh, Jane worked in the Office of Policy and International Affairs at the Department of Energy. And from 2001 to 2002, she served at the US Embassy in Tokyo's Special Assistant to the Energy Attaché. Jane, thank you for joining us today. and look forward to your comments. Sure. No, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on this uh, wonderful book, uh, all of the, the co-authors as well. Um, so as uh, Tom has already said, I mean, this book uh, brings together both the, the you know, um, close look at the policies and targets and things like resource levels, like funding that we read about quite a bit, but then that with the outcome. And I think it gives a lot of uh, evaluation, both from the quantitative but then also uh, qualitative uh, perspective, uh, enormously helpful for uh, those uh, that want to learn more about what's happening in China. Um, and it's also very timely. Um, in, in many ways, um, you know, to the sort of Washington, Washington audience, maybe, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's no need to really emphasize, but there's quite a bit of a, a discussion and debate within Washington and perhaps in the U.S. in general about um, our, the you know, state of our, our, our competitiveness, uh, particularly in energy innovation and manufacturing, since I come from energy, not the telecom uh, field, I'm more familiar with the energy side, but um, and, but then also uh, there is a um, uh, you know, realization that there is so much more happening uh, in China. There's a remarkable um, growth in China's competitiveness in both innovation and manufacturing that have captured uh, policymakers' attention. So um, 
you know, there is so much uh, more to be learned than what we sort of in, you know, read in a uh, uh, you know, casual manner in, in newspapers and so forth. Um, you know, as far as the state of our um, competitiveness goes, the U.S. energy R&D uh, status has been going down uh, quite a bit. It's not just the size of uh, the, the funding, but it's also the, the size of funding relative to our GDP, our, relative to our uh, econ in the size of the economy. Um, but then also, you know, compared to, let's say, you know, the year that a DOE was born, 1978, um, comparing the federal R&D uh, um, uh, funding level uh, to what well, we spent last year, the fiscal year uh, 2018, we're about 26% lower that level when there is much more emphasis uh, and, and I guess uh, recognition that there is a linkage between how much you spend and, and uh, the, the country's ability to grow and sustain the economic uh, uh, development. And, and I also want to touch upon, um, sort of going back to the, 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 I guess, the debate within Washington about how we feel about our competitiveness, but then also how we feel about the notion of, of industrial policy. As I've mentioned, I think um, one sort of major strand of that discussion comes or was you know, uh, precipitated by our realization that, you know, there, that you know, there is um, competing or rivalry from China. Um, for example, um, the relatively recent report put together under the leadership of the, the U.S. Senate uh, Committee uh, that looks at the Made in China 2025 and the future of uh, U.S. industry high, uh, really captures that sentiment. I think in many ways the advanced uh, or the high value goods uh, and services that was supposed to be coming from advanced manufacturing that U.S. workers were supposed to be able to capture seem to be all, you know, uh, not all, but uh, be captured quite a bit by the uh, colleagues from China. And that certainly is fueling a more internal examination debate. But the, on the other hand, though, there's also, um, in the context of climate change mitigation, uh, the, the notion of industrial policy is uh, uh, sort of entering into much more of a mainstream uh, uh, debate. Uh, in that context, the idea is, you know, to sort of look that looks to the, the bigger, more robust role of the government in energy R&D and manufacturing to be able to steer the economy towards a much lower um, carbon uh, system. And so, it's, it, the, so for that reason as well, I think this book is, uh, couldn't be more timely. Um, two um, additional quick points, if I may. Um, one is the, it's the, it has, Lauren just also um, illuminated, I think there are so many forces um, that drove the, the remarkable growth of the Chinese economy the past three, four decades um, are, seem to be in quite a bit of a tension with sort of a, you know, the focus on other um, values or, or um, I guess, uh, sort of elements uh, such as um, more of a top-down um, approach, perhaps, and also um, uh, more of a centralized approach uh, in looking at areas for uh, uh, for industrial policy. And and I was by re you know reading their book, I was struck by the magnitude of sort of experiment, if you will, or what's happening in China. I think one of the the um, quotes or one of the, the lines that you have in the book is that China is proving to be this, the most recent uh, and 
the largest proving ground for competing uh, innovation uh, dynamics. I think it's. I think it really captures um, uh, many of what I took. You know, I saw as my, you know my takeaway. Um, and lastly, uh, it's you know this is the, there's a New York Climate Week happening, uh, and some of my colleagues out, uh, up in New York uh, looking at some of the the global climate debates. And it's really um, it gave me additional sort of thoughts as to what China's contribution may be. Um, obviously. China is uh, one of the, uh, or the leading uh, emitter of greenhouse gas, uh, gases, but there's a lot of commitment from the, the government level. Um, and certainly with um, energy and clean energy, especially clean energy innovation side, there's been a lot of contribution, right? According to Bloomberg um, NEF, um, the, I guess last year's, by far, the, China was the largest uh, investor in clean energy technology last year. I think the figure was about $100 billion. Um, and followed by the US, uh, roughly around like 65 billion, then followed by European economies, as EU as a whole, roughly $75 uh, billion. And it's, you know, in, in many ways, you know, there is um, the type of leadership uh, that China has come to um, um, play. But it also made me wonder, um, you know, some of the constraint that the system may have on, on that, the, the scope for uh, contribution that China can make for the, the, the purpose of a global cli uh, climate change uh, mitigation. Because uh, to the extent that the energy and perhaps um, well, energy innovation and manufacturing uh, drive and the state interventions in uh, that sector is driven to capture the industrial competitiveness as opposed to, you know, to address climate. You know, of course, you know, when things are going well, things can go well. I mean, for example, I think nuclear is one of the best examples, right? I mean, there are so many nuclear power plants uh, uh, being built in China, uh, helping Chinese government to um, facilitate the fuel switch away from coal. Um, but then, at the same time, when you look at other sectors, um, for example, um, uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, even though the Chinese companies are, uh, have been uh, trying to advance the, uh, the emissions technologies and, and making it you know, um, high efficiency and, and low emitting um, uh, coal-fired power technology, I think because climate mitigation isn't the, the, the end goal, uh, I think you know that can, can and certainly do um, you know raise um, areas for competing objectives. Um, so um, I guess in, in the end, I mean, it's you know I learned a great deal from this publication, but I think I also have more questions. Not so much about what you and you know, your and your co uh, colleagues have written, but you know what may be happening um, in the Chinese system going forward um, and. Again, I apologize, I don't have telecom side of uh, um, uh, expertise, but certainly from energy side, uh, there's so much happening, but there are also um, quite a uh, sort of an area for uh, uncertainty. Sure. Thank you, Jane. Uh, super helpful in many aspects of, of the book and really appreciate your contribution. Um, let me turn things back to Tom and Lauren to see if you will have some initial reactions to some of the comments that Jane offered, and then I might ask, throw in a couple more questions, and then we've got a bunch of smart people out here who want to uh, weigh in as well. 
I, I think perhaps we can uh, turn to the audience. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm going to hold my questions and unfound the instructions from Tom and Lauren. And <laughs> no, we're more than happy you to take yours first, and then we can. No. You are our host, so. No, honestly. Uh, well, I guess the question, uh, I, one question I do want to ask. So, I don't know. You, you mentioned that you know you, there's not a party line in the book, and I guess I, I'm. It seems to me that there's a little bit of a tension, and in, in, I don't know if it's a, uh, uh, between the, the comments that both of you gave, and I don't know if these are. Uh, sort of, you know, uh, what do the Chinese call, you know, tensions that are between two opposing forces or mutually complementary. So, uh, so I, I, I took from Tom's comments basically this idea of path dependence. Uh, that uh, going back, uh, there's a long legacy of, of, of Chinese intervention in the economy going back to the Soviet era and five-year plans and et cetera. And, uh, and then you have the central, central local tensions uh, which also are affecting uh, the trajectory of behavior. And you can't, these are unescapable and the effect is basically cumulative and, and we're seeing that. And then I, I took uh, uh, from Lauren the emphasis on, the, on events, on a major disruptive event which has changed the trajectory of the Chinese economy as a whole, the global financial crisis. And productivity uh, performance before and after seem to be fundamentally different. And I'm wondering, is, are those m mutually exclusive descriptions of, of China's economic dy dynamics or complementary? I think they're complementary. Okay. Uh, I think what, what we see is that, that uh, China's response to the global financial crisis was rapid and effective uh, in contrast to the U.S. response to the global financial mm -hmm. uh, crisis, and it clearly strengthened the hand of people who emphasize the importance of top-down mm -hmm. policies. Uh, and and so I think we may we may speculate that that this this trend toward top-down policies was uh, in place and in action before. Uh, the new administration, which uh, came into office several years after the financial crisis, I, I, I don't see any uh, any friction at all between these two uh, lines of thinking. But you raise an interesting point about path dependence, because a lot of these industries that we're looking at are what most people would call relatively mature industries, mm -hmm. and so we've seen again success in other countries over periods of time, Korea, um, you know, in Japan where they've gone ahead, been able to accumulate capabilities and basically you know, develop firms that are able to compete with the very best of firms globally. So if we take a look in some of these industries, we're talking about an upgrading process that is probably 20 or 30 years old, if not even longer. And so a lot to explain some of these differences that we observe across industries, I would say you actually have to go back to the policies in the 80s and even in the 90s to take a look in terms of what were the policies, again, with respect to these industries and the path that put them on. And so this is going to be policies with respect to what was the role of the state, what was the role of the private sector firms, where was the demand coming from, how open were these sectors, again, to the multinationals. And certainly in other contexts, I've argued and identified sectors that were certainly much more open in that regard. And what it did is it kind of put China on a dynamic where over a relatively long period of time, they developed relatively deep capabilities that have put their firms, you know, today, private sector firms, in some cases, also uh, state-owned enterprises, now that are able, again, to compete 
in major markets, again, with the multinationals. So in that sense, you really have to take an historical perspective here, again, on this upgrading process, because we know that in the case of Japan and Korea, how long did it take, again, for them in even industries, again, like autos or in power generation to basically to achieve and to be able to compete you know, with the U.S. Uh, and with the Europeans? Okay. Terrific. Yeah. One other point, if I may, Go just ahead, going back to uh, the, the uh, discussion, uh, the environmental issues are also complicated uh, uh, in China because China not only has this ambition of lowering uh, carbon emissions, uh, as you said, largest world investment in renewables, but, but they're also investing in coal uh, at the same time. They've, they've just competed, completed a railroad, which when it gets to capacity is going to transport 200 million tons of coal a year uh, from Inner Mongolia and, and, and that region to central, uh, central China. And the, the coal people are very deeply entrenched uh, in the Chinese energy industry, in the Academy of Engineering, uh, and in many other places, and and they are not uh, they they are not going away. So th this is this is a very good example of of how central announcements and eventual outcomes may not be uh, may not be the same. But this is also a very good example in terms of competing interest. Yes. So here we've identified this technology, you know, the uh, uh, high voltage. Right, the ultra-high voltage so transmission. So the entire purpose? That's in, in order to be able to go ahead and to get, again, the energy and the electricity from where it's being generated, in this case, Inner Mongolia, to where the loads are. Right? So that's what that's all about. Well, the other thing that you can also do is you can build a railroad to try to go ahead and to get the coal to where you exactly. need it as well. Exactly. So these are competing, in some sense, interests. Clearly, I suppose, if you sat down and you did the economics, you might find that one might actually be more cost-effective than the other. But it's just also reflective of these multiple interests here, of where you often get things that are duplicating each other that are going to be contributing, again, from a system-wide perspective, into relatively high cost, low utilization, and, again, probably lower productivity you know, in the end as well. And like that's, you can see that exactly in that example. Mm -hmm. Those are terrific. Terrific. Okay. Uh, I think the other thing you've, this says is, is China's a big place. If China wasn't a big place, it couldn't try all these different things, right? It would, uh, it would run into problems much more quickly, and it's, but it's got the resources to attempt and experiment and, and do uh, multiple things, and that might actually give it the ability with the high savings rate to, to do this longer than others as well. Um, okay, let's turn it, over, uh, turn it over to the audience. Uh, uh, comments, questions, uh, uh, we've got a microphone that'll come to you, and we're gonna start uh, with Nick in the fourth row here. Just raise your hand. And if you just identify yourself and who you are for all the folks watching online. Uh, Nick Lardy from Peterson. Um, OECD countries, including the United States, have also had a substantial slowdown in productivity. And I'm wondering if you, you've mostly talked about things that are indigenous to China. But I'm wondering if there's any, you see, and I, I know it's not addressed in the book, because I've read the book. But uh, having worked on this, do you think there are any common causes uh, across a broader, a broader area than China. So, Nick, I've thought a lot about, as, about that as well, and in terms of, I, can, I know what kind of, from a measurement point of view, in terms of what the reduction has been in OECD productivity and the extent to which it may be spilling over. I'm beginning to have these thoughts that perhaps maybe the causality might be going in the other way. So that, you know, if you take a look again at this period, again, up to, to, up to 2007, 2008, where we see this growth in China, we see the growth in global trade. 
that although in a variety of ways that that growth in global trade may have been disruptive, you know, it was disruptive again in some ways in the United States and in Europe, and we see all kinds of policy consequences of that, that what that did is it helped to facilitate a reorganization of a lot of industries globally that was contributing again to productivity growth throughout the entire world. I mean, here again on the margin, I mean, China goes from having a relatively small percentage again of global trade to having a significant portion, and on the margin, again, it's that integration with those global supply chains that becomes extremely important. One of the things that we observe, if you take a look again at Chinese trade after 2008, it slows. And there's multiple reasons in terms of why it slows, but in work I've been doing with one of my colleagues, that what it suggests is the most important reason it slows is because productivity growth in China slows. It's not a consequence, again, of what's going on globally, but it's declining productivity growth in China. It's also because of increasing barriers to entry on the part of firms. And we do see an awful lot of new industries where the entire entry process, again, into these industries is becoming much more difficult. There's a very nice study that has recently been done of the shipbuilding industry. And in that particular industry is that they're looking at the effect that government subsidies happen to have. Government subsidies, again, on entry. Government subsidies on production. Government subsidies, again, on investment. And Tom cited the numbers. Their estimates of the subsidies that are being extended, again, to this industry between 2006 and 2013 are on the order of 550 to 600 billion renminbi. Now, what they're also able to identify is that those firms that happen to be beneficiaries of those entry subsidies, they're often not very good firms. So this entire entry process, again, that we know, again, in the past was so important, again, as a source of productivity, we're seeing, again, in China that in lots of these industries where state policy is becoming much more important, who gets land? Well, you know, who gets land? There's going to be some discretion there, and it may not necessarily be the best firm or the best entrepreneur. So, look, I think your point is extremely well taken. We do see a decline in productivity growth kind of in OECD countries. There's work, again, that's been done trying to, trying to get us to take a look in terms of what may be underlying that, to what extent it may be related to increasing market concentration, market power, again, on the part of firms that may be undermined incentives for R&D. But in the back of my mind, I'm beginning to wonder, again, if the correlation is going, some of the correlation may be going the other way. We're going to come here to the second row. This gentleman phone coming. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz, a retired engineer. And a uh, quick comment, uh, the reduction in apparent productivity growth is very, relatively easy to explain technically, but I don't have time to do it right now, so I'll ask a question. <laughs> I was in China in the mid-1980s when they were just starting to allow private enterprise. And when I went to a shop, I could instantly tell if it was government or private, because at a private shop, the people wanted to sell me something. When I went to a government shop, they'd just say mayo and walk away. I was tempted to say, hold the mayo. But <laughs> the question is, does that old-fashioned iron rice bowl philosophy still exist in government uh, businesses as opposed to private? In some places, I think the answer is yes. Uh, and where I've seen this recently is in coal mining. Uh, the labor productivity in coal mining is extremely low. Uh, I, I've seen figures that look more like U.S. figures at the time of World War I uh, than what I would expect, especially since the coal mining industry is very proud of its automation. And you read articles about the increasing automation in uh, coal mining. And I think what's happening is that they're large numbers of non-production workers who are essentially disguised unemployment 
uh, in the coal mining uh, industry, which is in, in many places in big financial trouble. And one of the difficulties in, in winding up these more or less bankrupt uh, coal mining firms is that how do you, what, do you, what do you do with the uh, workers? So I'm guessing the share of production workers in U.S. coal mining uh, historically, go, go back 100 years, has been over 90%. I've not seen figures about what the share of production workers is in Chinese coal mining, but I bet it's nowhere near uh, that. And I wouldn't be surprised if it were below 50%, maybe quite a bit below 50%. But uh, don't quote me on that, because I'm, I'm, that, that's, that is uh, pure speculation. Uh, another uh, straw in the wind, uh, I spoke uh, this spring to an, uh, someone who is familiar with insiders in one of the big petroleum companies. Uh, and he said the insiders believe that their company could match up well uh, with one of the big multinationals, uh, which he named, if only we didn't have to employ uh, three people for every one that we need. So I, th I think the answer is that this is not entirely, uh, uh, entirely a matter of history. I guess I, I would, uh, the perspective I guess that I would, I would, I guess maybe that I would take is that I would say that certainly over time that the role of the state-owned enterprises in terms of providing jobs, that's declined considerably. Absolutely. Certainly, you know, we can go to certain parts of a country where it happens to be important. But what is true is that state-owned enterprises and these big groups that we observe is that they're important in other ways. That they're important, again, not only in some senses being a cutting-edge R&D, new products going into industries that the state wants them to go ahead and, and, and to, uh, to move forwards to, but they're serving an awful lot of other purposes, even if it's no longer necessarily providing jobs. And that in the Chinese context is that, you know, once any actor, it could be a cadre, it could be, you know, it could be a head of a firm, once there happens to be multiple objectives, again, out there, all of which you're supposed to satisfy, you soon figure out which one, again, is going to be the most important, and you're going to leverage that to the max. And that moreover, that when we take a look at the way in which these state-owned enterprises happen to be organized today, you take a look at these huge enterprise groups, that have been growing both in terms of the, kind of the nature of their hierarchy, the number of subsidiaries. These are just unbelievably complicated entities. And that I sometimes wonder if the reason that the profitability is declining in these is just that these things are being reorganized in ways that allow the insiders to basically extract all these resources that are coming down through the system. And they're getting the resources because they're being asked to fulfill all kinds of objectives. And if I happen to be up Beijing, it's very difficult to me to know if, you know, if in fact their profitability is low just because it's a lot harder for them to go ahead and to, you know, to do, again, this particular project that they want, or if it's just the fact that they're not very efficient and individuals inside that firm happen to be enjoying you know, all the funds, again, that are coming down. So let's ask about the other side of the coin, the private side. And one of the sectors that you talked about a lot is telecom, and certainly the most popular or well-known firm China in Washington, D.C. is a telecom company, begins with the letter H. Uh, and I was wondering if you guys want to say a little bit about the other side, uh, about China's telecom sector, which seems to, uh, technology upgrading, wide, wide service, as you said, um, global market share, you know, the types of measures that you all used. And um, how should we interpret um, Huawei and China's telecom sector and the upgrading, is, is that uh, a product of not the type of industrial policies that you described, but in the 1990s, Huawei was the outsider, right? 
Um, so what's the, just, I'm just trying to bring in the other side of the coin here and maybe a little, and since we talked mostly about energy so far, to, to bring in this other part of the book. Go ahead. Do you want me to go ahead? Yeah. Uh, there's people in the room who know a lot more about the telecommunications indu industry than I do, but let me, I think there's a number of observations that I, I'll make. And part of it, again, is just you know, kind of based on just observing Huawei you know, since you know, the 80s and 90s. You know, it's kind of frequently forgotten in terms of how and why Huawei succeeded in the 80s and, and 1990s. You know, what they were doing is that they were producing switching equipment, that they were selling that switching equipment locally. Who were they competing with? They were competing with joint ventures between the multinationals and between the big state-owned companies. They had absolutely no, in some sense, kind of policy support, although, again, the technology, again, the switching equipment that they were manufacturing, basically the prototype came out of a, a research institute um, that was in Henan. So they and others, again, kind of had access to this prototype. But they were able to produce, again, a product that by, by, by comparison, again, to what the JVs were producing, was in, certainly of a much lower quality. It was also of much lower cost. And during this period, because of the nature of procurement in China's kind of MPT system, that what it meant is that every province, every, every municipality was making basically decisions, procurement decisions, on their own. And so Huawei, you know, perhaps again with you know, some other you know, benefits that were being extended to local buyers, they were extremely successful in terms of penetrating and succeeding in a very low end initially of the telecommunications market. That's where they began to grow. Now, they certainly wanted to move from you know, the switching equipment again to network equipment. They had enormous difficulty in terms of being able to achieve this domestically. So what do they do? They go to, they go to Africa. They go to other parts of the world, emerging markets where they feel like they're going to be able to go in and, and to succeed. And so Eric Toon, so Eric you know, was one of the you know, co-authors in the paper on telecommunications with Tim Sturgeon. You know, over the years, Eric and I you know, had visited, and visited Huawei and talked again with people from Huawei you know, who had spent years in Africa and trying to kind of cultivate again this market. And so you can see that this was a, a firm that in a variety of ways was discriminated against at least initially domestically. They go outside, they develop capabilities, then they go ahead and they come back. And so all of a sudden again, I think I'm less again in a position to say again what's happened you know, once we get to 3G, 4G in terms of the nature of government support. But they also followed an upgrading path that is very kind of consistent with the upgrading path in other successful industries. They're leveraging a domestic market, they're working on the low end, that's where they go, and over time they accumulate, again, in a variety of ways, deep capabilities within that allow them to go ahead and to not only compete internationally in a grow growing segment of markets, but they can do the same thing, again, internationally. You know, on the other hand, if we thought about, you know, if you talk about telecommunications, you know, China's had extreme difficulty in terms of competing in handsets. They've had extreme difficulty in competing in handsets, in part because the handsets is all about the baseband chipset. It's about the chip that goes ahead and goes inside the handset. And so we've certainly seen you know, Taiwanese companies like MediaTek that have been able to go ahead and kind of provide, again, solutions that allowed a Chinese handset industry to grow. And so that entire kind of what we sometimes refer to as, as the Shanghai kind of handset industry that went ahead and developed. Why did this industry develop? Well, it turns out that there were an awful lot of private sector firms who couldn't get a license to manufacture a cell phone in China because those licenses, again, were limited to a relatively number, small number of joint ventures between the state-owned enterprises uh, and, between, uh, uh, and between the multinationals. So here again, you, know, you have these Shanghai firms, again, that are emerging. A lot of them happen to be in Shenzhen. Was that policy, again, related? No. In fact, it was a consequence of restrictions that these firms, again, were facing. But that is, in some sense, the beginning of this very kind of dynamic ecosystem that we observe in Shenzhen. 
that in terms of both not only the telecommunications, the electronics industry, that becomes extremely, again, important, again, in that regard. Today, still, China has difficulty in terms of being able to produce, again, a chipset that goes into the phone that they can either compete kind of in the middle segment of the market with MediaTek, you know, or again with the multinationals at the high end. And then if we were to go ahead and to see where China's ultimately had lots of success in telecommunications, in terms of services, in terms of applications. I mean, the thing that sticks out, at least from my perspective, about these firms is one of the things that Chinese firms do well, is that they figure out what Chinese customers want. And so that what they do is they tailor their product, they tailor their services in a variety of ways to go ahead and to compete and to sell successfully. And so we're talking about industries now where a handset is almost a commodity. You know, it's the platform it provides, it's the services it can provide. And so if you look again about all of these Chinese companies, the service providers, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the Alibabas, the Tencent, what have they been able to do? Well, they've been actually able to leverage, again, this technology from the West and leverage it again in ways that have enabled them to go ahead and to, to be so successful in terms of the domestic market. And so the question that you ask yourself is, look, if these firms had not had access to that kind of technology, where would they be today? Well, they, I don't, personally, I don't believe that they would be where they would be today, right? So again, I don't know, know that anybody anticipated that kind of success you know, on the part of the application and service <coughs> providers. It certainly benefited from the huge investments that you know, the state you know, has made in terms of you know, engineers, software kind of people. But it's based, again, on these very sophisticated chips that continue to be imported. And I can't imagine anytime soon, you know, in some sense, um, you know, Chinese being able to, to go ahead and produce. So the last thought, then, <laughs> is just about Huawei and where Huawei may see itself again today. And so that you can see that Huawei itself has benefited enormously from being able to leverage the Android system. Right? And I think that's what's enabled it, again, to be able to so successful Kind of globally, look, at they're not make, probably making money off of handsets. They get bundled again with the network equipment that just kind of make their entire package a lot more, again, you know, in some sense, uh, desirable from the perspective of telecoms that happen to be importing these things. So if China, if, if Huawei gets cut off again from Android, then you look at, they are going to have a substitute that's going to probably allow them to go ahead and to service the domestic market, and it will probably be a very good s substitute. But there are going to be these larger costs if they're no longer going to be able to leverage Android and all the other services and applications that come with it, that it just may be perceived as being slightly less desirable, again, in terms of the market that could have a huge impact. So there's my thoughts on telecom. Terrific, terrific, thank you. Okay, hands up, we're going to come here, this third row. Uh, thank you. My question is with regard to Identify the, yourself. Oh, Shahid Yusuf from GW Size. The um, question is about the nuclear power energy system in China. As you know, it's a huge system, many uh, plants in operation and many more in the pipeline. And China is moving to indigenize some of this, has created its own second or third generation reactor based on Westinghouse technology, AP1000 and so forth. You mentioned that regulation is kind of weak, and you mentioned that equipment can often have small defects. Now, when you, when you bring this to the nuclear power sector and you know that China is exporting these plants and they've set them up in Pakistan and they're going to export them elsewhere and they're going to be uh, used in China as well, is this a source of concern? Well, I think the answer has to be yes, uh, but I, I would make two points. One is that uh, we were surprised 
to see the effectiveness of the nuclear safety people. This I, I personally did not expect. And given what we know about regulation in China, food safety, medicines, uh, and many other areas, uh, I expected we would see something like that uh, in nuclear, but, but uh, we, we have been quite impressed by the uh, seriousness and uh, forcefulness of the Chinese nuclear regulation, regulators, and, and also we know that the operators, the Chinese nuclear operators, get very high grades from international uh, agencies. So there are, there are, there's a, 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 a numerical score sheet for nuclear problems, uh, starting with one at the lowest, and I think seven for Fukushima and uh, Chernobyl. Uh, and the Chinese are very proud to emphasize that they've never had anything worse than level one. Uh, and this, this, this is, so, so there's uh, international verification by technical people, not people like me, uh, who don't know anything about nu nuclear uh, technology. But uh, this concern about equipment uh, quality is very much uh, present. If you read the Chinese technical journals, it is not hard to find people in the nuclear system who complain about neglect of standard procedures, procurement of non-standard materials, uh, equipment returned to the factory, uh, and, and, uh, and, and so on. And indeed, uh, in 2016, there was a big scandal about valves uh, that came out unexpectedly uh, in the Chinese press, where a couple of dozen nuclear equipment providers were forced to sign what amounted to confessions and promises not to repeat various misdeeds like providing false information and, and so on. Uh, there were their signatures and seals of the CEOs and party leaders, and this was all published in two pages of Zhongguo Nengyuanbao, which is China Energy Report. It's a trade journal. And so these people were publicly humiliated uh, I, uh, the next year I went and, and, and spoke with a Chinese nuclear engineer uh, of my acquaintance. I said, did you see that thing in Zhongguo uh, Nengyuanbao about nuclear valves? And he laughed uproariously because this, this guy knows all these people who were humiliated in that way. So uh, I think the nuclear safety people were behind this publicity episode. But the number of firms involved and, and the nature of the offenses that they admitted to by saying we won't do this anymore uh, was not not uh, uh, encouraging. Jane, did you want to? Yeah, if I may, just quickly, um, based as much on my own research as you know what I've learned from a, there is a chapter on nuclear in their book uh, that I think the the way the, the pace of uh, construction pace is obviously quite fast, probably the fastest now, but it's not that different from when the U.S. was building reactors, many reactors in the 70s. The, so the more they build, obviously they gain more expertise while in many OECD countries, you know, industries are struggling to hold on to the, you know, the, the learn, you know, tried and test, like sort of uh, uh, cumulative uh, expertise that you gain. Uh, quickly also two things um, that I think the, the post Fukushima Chinese review uh, to me was quite fast and decisive. They um, put the hold on uh, construction approvals and et cetera, implemented a lot of safety inspections, but then also tried to really um, speed up uh, the, the uh, 
formulation and publication of safety law. Obviously, it has taken a little longer, some of the, the safety laws a little longer than one may have wished for, but I think there is, there has been um, sort of a good rebalancing or adjustment in my view uh, that before Fukushima, the, the focus on uh, the installed capacity expansion was going ahead of the ability for the, co the country to pay more attention to the soft uh, capacity building, you know, the number of operators and safety regulators to be trained. I think uh, since 2011, there has been um, the better balance between uh, construction and also, but, uh, but then the, uh, the capacity building, uh, the human resource side. So, uh, but you know, there, it's, you know, it is uh, still fast paced, but again, I think there is also comparable uh, research going into uh, some of the, the you know, operational safety as well as security, uh, security or the safety. And um, uh, so I think there has, it's not all sort of just kind of worrisome trend. I think there are some uh, uh, things that are coming out of China that perhaps countries that have not been building at the, the steady pace can, can uh, begin to learn. Yeah, uh, just to underline that point. The, the, the shock of Fukushima went up and down the whole industrial ladder uh, in the Chinese uh, nuclear community. It was not just the policy people and the safety people. Uh, I, I visited a nuclear equipment manufacturer several years ago, and, and I was astonished at what they said. I was there with two Chinese uh, professors whom these people had never met before, and, 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 a, and an executive talking in front of his own people said that, that before Fukushima, we were in danger of he said, mangmu fajan, that is blind development. And, and to my ear, blind development is something that you accuse other people of doing. They did blind development over there. I've never heard anybody said, I did blind development. And that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm not a native Chinese speaker, but there are a lot of them in the audience. Uh, that, that's, that's a really tough comment uh, to make uh, looking yourself in, in the mirror. Uh, and I know people in the nuclear industry who are uh, running around China trying to sell Westinghouse products saying that, that many of their clients said same sort of thing uh, after, after Fukushima. So that, this, this, they really stepped on the brakes very hard. They added 1,000 people to the National Nuclear Safety Agency uh, roster. Uh, the safety agency has difficulty recruiting people because their pay is much lower than in the industry but the government has given them residence permits uh, that they can use. Uh, you come work with us and we give you Beijing huko. Uh, that, that, that language talks uh, in, in, uh, uh, in China. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a mixed, it is a mixed picture, but, but I should say substantially better than what I expected at the outset of our study, and I knew nothing about nuclear uh, when we uh, when we started out on this six or seven years ago. All right, we've got time for just uh, a few more comments. Why don't we collect a few questions and then you guys can pick and choose uh, amongst them and, and Jane offer some final comments. So we'll go the two gentlemen here uh, and then in the front row here and then the fourth row at the edge if we could. I'm sorry, to, I wish I could get everybody in. Uh, Drake Long, I'm a grad student over at Georgetown. Uh, a lot of the policy debate in the USA around things like CFIUS reform, and I hope this is not outside the purview of this talk, are around emerging technologies. What kind of reform? Like, we can't CFI hear you. Oh, sorry. 
uh, sorry, CFIUS reform, foreign investment reform, CFIUS. screening mechanisms oh, yeah. on foreign investment. Um, and a lot of that debate centers around emerging technologies that Chinese industrial policy seems to go towards, especially technologies that will basically uh, go into sort of like the export market, things like electric vehicles, and there's been a lot of money and a lot of industrial policy pumped into things like artificial intelligence. I know that this book does not necessarily deal with those particular markets, but I want to know if there's any lessons that we can draw from it that we should keep in mind when we're looking at the effectiveness of industrial policy towards emerging technologies like that. Okay, so we'll collect a few more. Uh, the gentleman right behind. Hi, I'm Chen Jun Zhao. I'm a Global Family Fund and current first year size student. Uh, so, with the ever expanding renewable capabilities and you know increasing natural gas import and oil import for China, it was kind of uh, surprising to see a resurgence in Chinese coal production after a period of constant decrease in the recent years. So, um, <clears throat> I was wondering, do you foresee that as like a long term? Uh, trend or was that only in response to short-term economic shock or what are some of the reasons you think are behind that? Uh, thanks. Oliver Melton from State Department. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you about something that I thought was a little bit in tension um, with, in your presentations. Uh, Tom, you said that you did not see, you did not have any grand theories of what made industrial policy work and what made it not work and that you had similar policies producing different results. Um, but Lauren, you mentioned that there are some hard rules about the need for competition, openness, um, and, and things like that. And of course, that is often the result of industrial policy, right? The policy choices that you make at the, at the top can determine the role of large state-owned enterprises, the degree of market concentration, openness to foreign investment. So I was wondering if you could sort of tease that out a little bit. Okay, and then the last is the gentleman on the, with his hand up there. Sorry that we couldn't get to everybody today. Yes, uh, can you talk to the factor of um, cost of living and currency in your uh, long-term analysis of productivity? I'm sure. What about currency? The factor that plays in productivity and how you're measuring productivity, cost of living and uh, currency when you're comparing the, uh, East versus West. Okay. Let me just quick, quickly on that, that, that point. Uh, my cost comparisons, I simply use the exchange rate, the official exchange rate that's published in the newspaper and so on, which, which, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. I, I cannot remember the last time somebody has tried to do a non-official market, a black market currency exchange uh, with me maybe 15 year, years ago. I mean, in, in the, in, long ago, uh, when the currency exchange at official rate was not realistic, people would stop you on the street and say, change money. But uh, this, this doesn't, uh, doesn't happen anymore. So you can think about PPP exchange rates uh, and so on. Actually, my results on comparing electricity costs are much worse uh, for the Chinese if you use a PPP exchange rate than if you use the market exchange rate. So I didn't follow through with that. Um, and uh, while, while I'm speaking here, let me say something about coal. Uh, so coal, coal production reached a peak in 2013 and then went down, but now it's going up. Uh, went up last year, went up the year before. First half of this year is higher than the first half of, uh, of, of last year. Uh, see, what's, what's going on? The elect electricity market reform is increasing market 
forces in electricity. People want to buy electricity cheaply. Costs are high. Uh, the hydro people can't lower costs. The wind and solar costs are coming down, but those are pretty small. The big opportunity to reduce costs is in the coal sector. The nuclear people can't reduce costs. Their costs are going up because of safety requirements and new vintage. So, so the, the electric power prices are, are, are sliding downward. And this is giving market advantage uh, to the uh, uh, coal people. So, and that is retarding the decline in the uh, share of power coming from coal uh, which which remains uh, very high, and and uh, uh, as I said before, the coal people are not going away. Uh, they they uh, they are not uh, they are not accepting the idea that coal is the wave of the past, and so on. Nor are some of the regional governments, say in Inner Mongolia, Shanxi, places like that. Uh, this 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 is this is a uh, going to be a long drawn out. Uh, drawn out process, and of course we know that the Chinese are building coal power plants in many uh, uh, many other countries uh, as well. The electric power industry has a lot of excess capacity in the whole supply chain, design, construction, equipment, and one of the big functions of Belt and Road uh, is to open up a market for these uh, uh, for th these industries and also for the nuclear industry, which also has a lot of excess capacity because they have the, they can equip eight to ten reactors a year and that that's that that's less than what's in, in the pipeline going forward because of slow approval of new projects so let me just get to you know Oliver's point because in some sense it's fairly similar to a question that Scott raised and Tom went ahead and replied well you know that our perspectives are complementary um, I think that Tom would probably agree again that openness in general has been a very good thing increasing competition you know, is, a, is a very good thing one of the things I think that makes this a little bit difficult in terms of trying to make any kind of an assessment is that we see these huge investments that they happen to be making in terms of the state sector and in certain kinds of technologies. You know, perhaps five years, ten years from now, maybe these things are going, to, are going to deliver in ways that today I can't anticipate. My own kind of gut is, and if you just, even if you went back and looked at the experience even before 1978 where they invested you know, enormously in certain kinds of technologies, under the current institutional environment, they just weren't able to leverage those things. Once you go ahead and you move to new kinds of policy regime, and in terms, again, that that technology diffuses and the incentives of individuals are adopting it, just radically altered, all of a sudden you see, again, you know, the, the returns, again, to those much earlier investments. And so but I guess my general sense is, is that in, in light of the nature of the inst institutional environment that we observe here, and that includes, again, both the way in terms of policy making is being made, in terms of the way in which the priorities are being set, in light of the way in which local and central governments happen to be interacting, the way in which state-owned enterprises are and behaving. And one other point, I mean, you know, here we talk a lot about state-owned enterprises, that one of my biggest, in some sense, if I, if I ask myself about, well, why do I believe that Chinese growth is, is, is slowing? I actually believe it has a lot to do with the way in which private sector firms and entrepreneurs are behaving. That, you know, over the course of the last five or six years, I think we see systematic ways, systematic differences in terms of the way in which they happen to be behaving. And I can certainly cite examples of where I've looked at, you know, kind of private enterprise groups and the way in which they're organized, the way in which they're configured, the lines of businesses that they're happening to be going into. They look an awful lot like SOEs in that regard. So that the way in which they are being incentivized, again, under the current system, is changing. And so if there's one, you know, concern in terms of where, you know, this dynamism is going, if we thought that private sector firms and entrepreneurs were so, so important, 
I actually believe that under the current environment, the nature of the incentives that they are facing, again, as a group, has changed. I mean, it's always been there. I mean, in 10 years, when Eric and I, mean, Eric and I were you know, doing, again, some work, we would occasionally talk to private sector you know, you know, entrepreneurs, and we would ask them about you know, making investments in certain kinds of sectors, and you know, they would you know, say, hey, look, you know, I'm not going to move into that sector because you know, there, there's SOEs. But today, I find that there's signals that are coming down from the top, signals that are coming up from local governments. And they're saying, hey, look, this is a sector in which people have identified as being important. If I want to be on the right side here. And so I see them making choices and investments that I would say 10 years ago they wouldn't have made. But today, under a slightly different kind of political environment, they are. So you know, in that regard, I think my own kind of gut is that moving forward, they're not going to be able to leverage these things under the current institutional environment. And so lots of these investments that we observe, they're just not going to have the returns that we might have expected. And that might have provided, again, you know, uh, and, and, you know, uh, continued you know, rates of growth of 6 to 8% for a decade or two. We haven't responded to the question from the gentleman over here who wanted to ask about restrictions on incoming foreign investment in the United States. And I'm uncomfortable talking about this. Uh, we're not U.S. policy people. We don't know anything about military and defense uh, technology. Uh, but I, I should just say as, a, as a, a quick reaction, I'm uncomfortable with the notion of shutting out uh, foreign firms because it's not clear exactly why we're, we're proposing to do this. It, I mean, this, this, is, this is what we see in China. And what we're telling you, and I, I agree with Lauren that there's no, uh, I, I'm thinking of industrial policy as doing things. Uh, and, and I'm not thinking of industrial policy as, as opening, uh, but I, sh I should. Your, your, your point is uh, good. I, 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 I just worry, worry about this, that, we're, that we'd be in, in danger of imposing the kind of costs on ourselves that we, that, that we that, I mean, we Americans would be imposing the kind of costs on ourselves that we, Lauren and I, uh, think the Chinese government is imposing uh, on the Chinese economy by this, uh, uh, this kind of policy. I mean, the underlying idea is that Chinese firms don't have a lot to offer. And I, I worry about this as a mindset that we are in danger of Occupying just, and the reason I say this is uh, I had an experience a couple of years ago where I met the CEO of the Chinese wing of a big U.S. energy company. And I talked to this uh, CEO about what I had read about in Zhongguo Nanyanbao, the weekly energy journal, and this man didn't know. I couldn't believe it that this guy is sitting in his office in Beijing and he doesn't have anybody with office very close to his who's told, you scour the Chinese press and tell me what's going on. And this was, this was in his own industry, possibly involving quality defects in components that he was buying and putting in his, his projects. And I, I, was, I was staggered by that level of ignorance. I've encountered that. Uh, uh, before on the part of other American executives telling them, you, you go to China, you hire somebody and say your job is to be my eyes and ears. You find out everything I need to know about what's going on in China. And, and this executive said to me, uh, I can't hire anybody who doesn't have three years experience in my industry. And, and that project, the, this company uh, failed miserably uh, in China. I discovered uh, uh, years later 
And the reason they failed was because they didn't know what was going on in China. So I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, That's a wonderful way to conclude. The proposals uh, <laughs> may, be, may have merit. There may be good reasons that I don't know about. Yes. But I, this, this is just what, I, what occurs to me as I contemplate your entirely appropriate question. Yeah. The, 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 this shows a level of humility that you, you don't even, that I understand it, but I also know that you know a lot more, and we've seen that today and over the course of your career and with, and with Lauren as well. I understand that uh, there are some general lessons that may emerge from the study, but no hard and fast rules. Uh, obviously, history matters, the institutions matter, um, and uh, unintended there are lots of unintended outcomes, right? Maybe what we should be looking for is not the center, centerpiece of industrial policy, but along the fringes and the shadows of it to see what, what, what might come out. Uh, I think if, if that's the case, and you give every good reason uh, that it is uh, in the book and the discussion today, then it suggests for the U.S. that they should be careful, uh, that the U.S. shouldn't overreact, that if we follow up uh, with our own response of, of lots of industrial policy, we might run into similar types of conclusions and we'll have a difficult time predicting uh, the outcome, whether it's for competitiveness reasons or national security reasons. So, so be careful, I think, is, is a good policy conclusion that I might, might take away. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, books uh, and Tom and Lauren outside if anyone would like to buy a copy and have it signed. Before then, please join me in thanking them uh, and Jane for a fantastic discussion.